What's up, everybody? You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush, and I am very lucky to be bringing you a special Sundance recap, a recapitulation, if you will, of all the things that were going on at Sundance this past week or so. Uh, very lucky to be joined by a group of guys that went got the chance to go to Sundance. They uh, knelt at the Temple of Cinema, and uh, they've got some interesting thoughts on what what they saw. Uh, just going to go around here and give everyone their introduction. Let's start with Matt Zapola, who's actually joining me here in in my little studio. Uh, you know him from the Board of Review. He also writes for Film Monthly and has been doing Sundance dispatches for The Spool, formerly known as Alka Hollywood. Matt, welcome back. Hello, hi. I've been I've been loving your your dispatches. They feel like my connection to the rest of the world, and I'm just on a desert island rewatching uh, John Woo movies and waiting for. I don't know, some news, something new to come out of Sundance. I think that's how we all feel. <laughs> and we've also got Nick Allen returning to the program. Uh, you know him from RogerEbert.com. And also, he's been on the board of review. Nick, good to talk to you. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Um, I'm ready to talk. How, how exhausting was Sundance for you? I have. I literally last night had a dream that was like when you forget to do your homework. And you're like trying to remember to do your homework. I had a dream last <laughs> night of like, oh, I'm missing movies right now. Why am I sleeping? Yeah, I can't so, sleep. Yeah. There's too many movies to talk about, too many movies to see. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's where I'm coming down from right now. And for the first time on the program, uh, we have Robert Daniels. He is a critic for 812 Film Reviews, um, and he was recommended to us by Nick. And I said, you know what? I trust you, Nick. Bring me Robert. (laughs) And uh, you know what? I've been reading some of your stuff, Robert. Very impressed. Really like your style. Thanks, Nick and Tom, for having me. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, (laughs) I have to ask, Robert, was this your first Sundance? Yes, this was. Um, felt like I almost died, in fact. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I, I know that uh, Matt Zapola had a, a little bout of sickness. Yeah, okay, so this is the thing. Because I, I got there on Monday. I got there on a Monday, and I was f- generally fine the entire week. Um, and then it wasn't until Saturday that I woke up, and I thought I was dying. And then I realized that I'm just, I have such a good immune system that whenever I have any bout of allergies, I think I just got shot in the throat. And it turns out I was not shot in the throat. I was able to get over it just by chugging 64 ounces of Gatorade. Electrolytes. Um, yeah, exactly. It was great. Um, so I didn't see two, so there were like two early slash early-ish screenings on Saturday that I didn't get to go to. So... Oh, it well. could be worse. Yeah, could no, be it could have been worse. No, it's and then I got back here, and now that I'm back at like, was it 500 feet? What's the dude here? <sighs> Flat. Yeah, something, exactly. something a lot easier to deal with than um, than where Sundance is. Remember, where is it? Is it Utah? Yeah, it's Park City, Utah. Yeah, Park City, Utah, where uh, you know Mormons and cinema come together in glorious <laughs> harmony. Um, low so, blood alcohol volume. Yeah, very low. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's get straight into it. Now, you've all provided me with a fantastic list here of uh, five movies that you guys saw that you were really into, Um, but we'll get into some of those in just a moment. I wanted to get your individual overall impressions 
of Sundance. And um, I guess we'll just start with Robert, since this was your first one. Robert, uh, when it comes to the movies that you saw, were you impressed? Did you think it was kind of middling? Were you disappointed? Give us a give us a rundown. Um, I was impressed, even though the the word on the ground was that this Sundance wasn't as like. Um, I guess noteworthy as as previous Sundances, but um, there were a few films that I just was seriously astounded by, especially for their diversity and uh, the subject matters that they were tackling. Some very, very heavy, heavy, heavy films that um, felt like a slog, actually, at the beginning of the year, but um, yeah, in the end, impressed me. Well, that's always good to hear. I mean, impre- being impressed is what you hope to go for to go uh, to Sundance for. I mean, I myself have never been to Sundance. Uh, I hope someday I will be able to make the uh, make the trek. But um, I'm glad that you had a good ex- first experience with Sundance. Can you describe the mood for me a little bit? Like walking around, what are what are Sundance people like? <laughs> uh, well, Sundance people are, are, are a pretty interesting mix. I mean, the great thing is you're obviously in screenings with people who are in, who would only come to this town for films. Um, and so, you know, just about everyone is, is passionate about cinema. Um, I guess the, the main thing about Sundance um, that I was pretty surprised by is just how much traveling there is from one uh. venue to the next. And... Um, honestly, some of the best conversations you'll come across will be on the shuttle buses from one venue to the next. Amazing. So you get to uh, get the whole experience of not just watching movies, but you're surrounded by people who also love movies. Now, uh, Nick, was this your... How many Sundances have you been to? Uh, I think this is my fifth one. Yeah, fifth. Wow. Five five Sundances. And uh, where yeah. would you rank this one out of those five? Um. So, yeah, I would say that it doesn't have um, as someone who like was extremely lucky to go and see like Manchester by the sea at the Sundance world premiere and to like be kind of blown away by it for like the rest of the year that followed there. Ne- there was not as as a heavy of an impact, certainly from the the movies in general. But I would certainly say every year has a good crop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are kind of freaking out because there were more deals than there were kind of like awards, huge things. Um, kind of in the mix, which I think is kind of the barometer or movies that like seem important or that like, oh, this is really going to influence how the rest of the movie year looks. Whereas this sentence is like, wow, there's going to be some really good indies that are going to come out this year. Um, so it was, it was, the, year, kind it was of the year of making feelings. it was the year of making the deal and uh, securing, you know, I saw that the uh, Zac Efron Ted Bundy movie was picked up by Netflix. Uh, people were pretty excited about that. Yeah, they they wisely had the the documentary, you know, Ted Bundy tapes before, and they so I imagine it was just kind of a matter of time. Um, but even just like kind of comparing to last year, it's kind of interesting that like last year there weren't a lot of deals that were made um, during the Sundance time, mm-hmm. uh, and then this year there were a lot that were kind of made like right after screenings for movies that were picked up a lot by Amazon. So it was kind of interesting. Last year there was the vibe of like, wait a second, is this is this festival kind of out of touch with like what the distributors want, and then like for a, a larger audience? As in this year, it's kind of like no, like Amazon believes in a lot of these movies, and they're going to get them out there, even if like there's no like resounding huge hits aside from maybe a couple. Um, okay. Yeah. 
So that was Sundance 2019 for for you. Now, of course, <laughs> Matt, uh, Matt, you and I first met because you had gone to the Cannes Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and how many Sundance is this? Your first this is my first one as well. First yeah. Sundance as well. Uh, give me give me a read on the differences. So being in you know France to go to a film <laughs> festival versus going to uh, Utah, Park City, Utah. I mean, the diet was essentially the same because I was living <laughs> off of espresso and bananas or bagels. But I mean, the main thing it was like what Robert said. It's with with Park City, you have to actually commute from A to B a lot of times, and sometimes from A to G. But um, I mean, the main thing is it's weird just because it's it wasn't it's they repurpose you know individual venues for the for the sake of screenings i mean like the p and i screenings are all on a four we're on a um a four screen small multiplex each screen had about 135 seats um and then there's one right next to it that's like 500 seats and then there's a double tree hotel where they repurpose the conference space to be a 250 seat auditorium and then the biggest venue is the Eccles, which is a thousand seat high school auditorium. So you're just sort of in all these different weird areas, um, and there isn't much of a connecting tissue between them mm-hmm. other than the shuttles. Um, luckily, I didn't have to. I mean, I, I mostly plan my days in terms of what can I do without having to commute a ridiculous amount. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for the most part, I was. It was a lot more tiring. Maybe it was because of the thin air, and I didn't realize it until afterwards. But I mean, I can only imagine. Yeah. I mean, you're in a totally different environment. You know. Uh, I mean, everyone spoke English, so that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very nice change of pace. Well, I'm glad that uh, you know we've got two uh, Sundance newcomers. And I'm um, glad that you guys seem to enjoy it. Uh, let's jump into some of the movies that you guys brought up as something you want to talk about. Now, uh, Robert, I'm going to go straight over to you with this one. Um, now, Netflix recently brought this onto their platform, uh, directed by Dan Gilroy, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, another collaboration for them. We know that they worked on, they did Nightcrawler together. And uh, the movie I'm talking about is Velvet Buzzsaw. It was uh, one that I've been interested in. I haven't gotten to watch because I was too busy watching the fantastic Natasha Leone in Russian Doll. Very, very excited about that series. But uh, tell us a little bit about your read on Velvet Buzzsaw. So, yeah, um, I went into Velvet Buzzsaw pretty excited because I loved Nightcrawler, um, Gilroy and Hall's previous collaboration. Um, and the film itself, I mean, it's a interesting satire of the art world especially the um acquisition art world but uh i wasn't a fan of its mix of horror and comedy i thought the horror um didn't catch up with the comedy and when it was used tonally it just it just felt out of place so uh velvet bus was actually one of the lower films that i rated for sundance Really? That that's kind of surprising. Well, and I have to say I have not watched it yet even though I do have the ability to just ter- turn onto my TV right now and get it. But um I, I agree with you. I was a big fan of Nightcrawler. I thought that was a great role for Jake Gyllenhaal and I was like, "Oh, wow, they're going to collaborate again. Let's see how it goes." But I do agree that the trailer seemed to make it, I don't know, the the mix of horror and what was going on seemed a little out of place. It didn't seem like it was going to be handled well, but I liked the concept. Uh, what was the audience's reaction to Velvet Buzzsaw? Um, I mean, I I saw it 
premiere. And um, I mean, the audience seemed to like it more than I probably liked it. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it's a comedy and comedies tend to play well with large audiences. And um, I believe this was at the Eclis, which I believe is the the largest theater um, that Sundance has. So, I mean, it did play well with audiences. And Jake Gyllenhaal, honestly, is fantastic in it. Um, I was surprised by how well he actually handled comedy. Um, yeah, it just, um, I, I was just, uh, not part of the, uh, the whole wave. Hmm. Well, and, uh, as, as me and my co-host, uh, Connor, who unfortunately is not here right now, um, as we've talked about many times on the show before, horror and comedy can be a really potent mix, um, especially when done correctly, because we firmly believe that they use a lot of the same principles, the idea of a setup and a payoff. Uh, whether it's a joke or a scare, there's something that can work between those two. We've seen it in classics like Evil Dead or even as recently as Get Out. I feel that uh, Get Out was one of those movies that mixed the you know the building of a joke and the building of a scare in a similar way but uh it's it's not working here with velvet buzzsaw yeah no i mean i felt like the timing of the jokes were great i mean just because it's it's just so easy to laugh at the art world um yeah and i guess you know the the snootiness of it like there's um there's the um Danny DeVito like gift that's been or video that's been going around of of, of him seeing um, like an air conditioner and being astounded by it and that's kind of like the basis of the jokes in <laughs> the buzzsaw. Well, and uh, is there is there something metatextual? And uh, I don't want to get too deep into the woods here, I guess. But is there something metatextual about the fact that you're watching this satire of acquisition art acquisition? at Sundance where people are literally acquiring, uh, other art. Like, do you, was, was there, were people aware of that? Um, I, I'm not sure how much of the audience was aware of that. I mean, I was aware of that as I was watching it, it, it made it even funnier. The fact that this was screening at Sundance and you knew that like probably about two minutes ago, there was a very mysterious slash vaguely, uh, interpreted indie that was probably bought up for $15 million. <laughs> Yeah, someone was writing a, a number on a piece of on a piece of paper and slipping it over to uh, another exec. Um, so, would you would you recommend people at least give it a shot? Because, uh, as you said, the audience seemed to enjoy it, but you personally were like, "Ah, eh, it's not exactly working here." It, since it's on Netflix, I mean, do we just set aside a couple hours and uh, give it a shot? Yeah, I mean, I would say give it a shot. I mean, there were people. Once again, um, who I met on the shuttle um, back to my hotel that really like loved it, um, absolutely enjoyed it. Um, so I, I think it's definitely worth the, the 50-50 shot. Very good. All right, I'm going to turn over to Matt here. Uh, something that I was really interested in was Apollo 11 mm-hmm. documentary. Uh, and you, I was read, reading your dispatch. You had some very kind words to, uh, yeah, to pass this way. You really great. liked it. Yeah. Um, In the year of First Man, does this do a better job of doing a space movie? <laughs> I guess, technically, sure. Um, I mean, it, just in terms of how... I mean, because this was, a, this was um, cobbled together from over 100 hours of archive footage um, from NASA, and it was put down to 93 minutes, and you wouldn't realize that. Um, it's just a recreation of the launch on July 
1969. Um, and yeah, it was the 16th. And uh, it's just this really, I mean, what I liked about it a lot was, first of all, it's, it has a really keen interest in, I mean, if I'm going to use a buzzword here, the human condition, just in terms of how it, <laughs> how it sets up all of the, it like really the, cause the opening shots and all of the ways that it establishes this time and place are just, you know, shots of people sitting around lying on the beach, waiting to watch the, the launch happen or like drinking cheap beer or dipping their toes into the water or like the way the light hits their face and they like awkwardly gaze at the camera and make eye contact with you 50 years earlier. Um, and then all the ways that it'll just sort of skim through and about and skate up and down these cultural touchstones. The idea of like these people existing in a world that doesn't really have a care. Like this is, two days or so before, you know, Mary Jo Capetney died in Ted Kennedy's car. And it's something that you get a very brief, you know, you very briefly hear like an audio snippet from a news archive off to the side of that. And that creates a time, of, uh, like a sense of place that's very fleeting or like this is three years or so before Ted Kennedy before became, you know, synonymous with scandal. And so all these people are living in this sort of, you know, twice removed sense of time and place is specifically with not just within you know the country as a whole but just in the zeitgeist and it's set up in this really symmetrical way which is it's you know only an hour and a half and for the first half more or less it's them getting to the moon and then the midpoint is them getting to the moon and then afterwards it's them getting back and it's you know put together with these bouts of long takes there's a really good sense of motion very few static shots even if there is a static shot it's almost like a period to punctuate any sort of motion um and then there are these bouts of things that would feel out of place like these you know impressionistic editing choices and there's diptych diptych and triptych editing choices that are you know truly infatuated with the art that came before it and the art that follows afterwards and it's this really unstuck in time piece that's pretty beautiful it has a few pacing issues mm -hmm. in the second half um when it loses that sense of motion I, whether it's you know emotionally or you know visually that sense of motion um but no i was really impressed with it. it's really strong work also it's something you should see on the biggest screen you can because it has such a tactile quality to it it looks yeah. fantastic well i mean when you have all that kind of official footage mm -hmm. I, I mean, space to me, when when it's presented on film, should always be seen in the biggest theater possible. It's you know, it's how I felt when um, I got to see two thousand one for the first time in a big theater. Saw uh -huh. that at the Music Box, and I was just like, I can't believe I've gone my entire life thus far without seeing uh, space represented this way. I I really want to hone in on what you were talking about with this. And I know human condition is a buzzword, but when it comes to films, when they try to tap into that, it's it can be a very fine line sometimes. Yeah comes off as overly sentimental yeah. or kind of like pappy bullshit but um it seems like this one really captured a very specific time of american innocence you were talking yeah. about these cultural moments that were about to come and we all understand the 60s as a pretty turbulent time especially the late 60s mm -hmm. a very turbulent time in american history um 
and you're saying that this really represents is that is that really what the wonder of this film is not necessarily the space but yeah, the, the the world that they're inhabiting yeah because the space is more of a backdrop i mean the, you don't see a ton of i mean there are obviously there are shots of space and they're all one thing i thought was really cute is that the three um astronauts are credited with they get cinematography credits at the end of the movie because obviously they're the ones who shot it yeah. from the shuttle um and that's the footage they're using i mean the space is much more of a backdrop it's a lot of interiors or a lot of the obviously the the bigger shots and the more popular shots are obviously the ones that take place on earth and they're in florida but um you know when you get a shot of you know for example earth from the perspective of the moon it's it's i mean there is just that there's that emotional attachment in terms of oh this is this is real Mm -hmm. yeah do you think and i know we're talking about two different um forms of filmmaking Mm -hmm. uh we're talking about documentary versus a narrative film yeah uh do you think that this captures what first man wanted to capture or do you think that they kind of do do a similar thing and go their own way because i feel like a lot of first man in my estimation was dealing with not the space part although those parts were thrilling and they were a facet of the movie but really uh trying to look at an astronaut specifically neil armstrong as a human person who is forced to go not forced but went underneath extraordinary pressure and how that changed him or maybe solidified who he was yeah no i mean i think because i wouldn't necessarily compare them but i think they would they're they make for good complementary films because the thing about i mean thematically they're similar um or they're almost opposites um the thing is with like because with first man you get an idea of a sense of a person who is treated specifically as an encapsulation of the fear of human failure and so he's driven to go farther and farther and farther away from his possible failures possible and that brings him into outer space and you kind of get and they're both so i mean you get that with apollo 11 although to a much more intimate yet sprawling scale um and there's something really beautiful about it but it's a lot of that has to do with the way that's structured it's very symmetrical as i mentioned just in terms of how it plays out um but no i i I was i really enjoyed it it was my favorite documentary that i saw at the festival fantastic well uh you know 2018 was a great year for documentary Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of fantastic stuff so i'm I'm really excited to see that continue uh let's hop on over to nick allen uh one that you listed here in your five films was britney runs a marathon starring jillian bell who many may know from workaholics um she's been in a few comedies uh the last couple of years uh starting to make a little bit more of a name for herself but uh tell us a little bit about this one um so i I, so i mentioned this one because i it's uh it was like and not to keep sounding like the business guy but it was like the biggest deal i think at sundance Mm -hmm. and i think it's i think it has like kind of the widest they also won the uh, audience award for the dramatic competition which is pretty amazing given the the films that were in the dramatic competition Mm -hmm. so uh my stance on this one it's it's um it's it's kind of the story you expect where it's about a woman in her uh like a 20 something kind of trying to pull herself together um she has uh, low self-esteem and uh you know she's not living kind of a healthy lifestyle so she decides oh maybe i'll i will try to like run a block and then she joins a runner's group and then she becomes friends with runners and it becomes kind of about her um emotional journey i suppose while kind of being 
cooked into a, a pretty joke heavy um, comedy with like really good supporting performances. Um, but I didn't find the movie very funny. I, I more kind of wanted to bring it up just because of its, of like kind of the, the response it got, but also that it's a good example of when you have a, a kind of a comedy that an indie comedy that wants to look like a studio comedy that wants to have like the kind of the gloss and the ease of, of a studio comedy, which was very bizarre to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but still kind of have some surprising emotional notes because it becomes much more about her understanding the motivation behind such a change in her life. And the movie is not just about like the, the simple progress of she has a goal and she accomplishes it. There's some interesting sidetracks involving the relationship she has with people who are articulated by some really good supporting performances. Um, like Michaela Watkins and Micah Stock and Utkar Shambhutkar, um, all of them kind of given these supporting roles that, oh, and Little Royal Howery, actually, he's also really good, even though you spend most of the time watching him like video chat with Brittany as her <laughs> brother-in-law. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely not one of my favorites, but I, I would say it, it also kind of was um, kind of one of the more definitive Sundance movies because Sundance also has a certain ear and air for crowd pleasers and for movies that people... Um, that they just kind of want to laugh and be a little bit challenged by. And this is kind of the exact, that kind of exact mixture. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's sincere. It's by uh, a playwright named Paul Downs Colazio uh, or Colazio. And um, it's uh, yeah, it's like a little kind of glossy smooth thing, but it was picked up by Amazon and it will definitely be like a rainy day binge movie. Um, For sure. And a lot of other people found it much more funnier than I did. And I really like Julian Bell. I think, We've gravely underestimated her since 22 Jump Street when she was incredible in that. And we kind of, you know, the movies didn't give her what she deserved after that. Um, but this will be a good uh, mark for her career. Um, but certainly, yeah, one of the sundance era Sundance movies I saw this year. That's interesting that, that you were able to pick this up as like a, like, Sundance has a has a mode. It has a has a little bit of a mold in the way that you know Oscar bait does. This is you would consider Britney runs a marathon something that would typically play well at Sundance. Yeah, I saw a couple other movies like that too. There was a movie called Troop Zero that's been, I think it already has distribution or I'm, I'm oh by Amazon, uh, mm-hmm. and it's about like a kind of ragtag Girl Scout group um, that they want to. You get one merit badge each and it's like very feel good. And it's definitely kind of for a festival that you think is, um, would be about like kind of, you know, uh, progressiveness. There definitely is that or, or, or of, uh, you know, kind of challenging people. They definitely have a certain spot for movies that are about people kind of gathering together from their outsider perspectives and doing a little silly dance and kind of having some kind of victory at the end. Very little Miss um, sunshine. Yes, exactly. Like very pro, very kind of, and that and Patty Cakes kind of carried on the legacy in like 2016 or whatever sure. the hell that horrific movie year was. <laughs> um, and and it's just a matter of if you do a genuine. And I would say Brittany Runs Marathon is one of the more genuine ones, and so is that movie Troop Zero. Um, but definitely, um, just kind of defining like a one of the more major products you get out of a festival that's engineered to also bring in a lot of people and to make them feel good. Um, before they go to like eight parties down on you know Main Street, yeah, you know. as they go searching for Robert Redford. 
Exactly. Trying exactly. to find him at the Sundance Institute. Just want to see two movies, and that would be one of them. You know. Okay. Yeah. And and with Amazon Studios picking that up, uh, the number was fourteen million. There you uh, go. Huge, huge sum of money. Uh, yes. And at the very least, you know, I, do you think it's going to get a theatrical release, or are they just going to drop that? On? So they're going to throw it in, throw it in theaters. Hopefully. Uh, you know, it'll liven up a little bit of this recent trend of um, this is going to sound bad, but it's uh, basically white female comedians trying to feel doing movies about feeling better about yourself. What right? are the other? What are the so other ones? Other than I'm I think pretty. I feel pretty, and isn't it romantic? Starring Rebel Wilson. Oh sure, yeah, which yeah. which really feels like way too. Cl- at, at least this seems like a slightly different plot line where. Um, yeah. You know, it's 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 more realistically self uh, self improvement. There's, no, there's no fantasy to this one. If if, if we want, I want to draw that line. Like, yeah, it's not about kind of like a delusion that comes across from like a soul cycle experiment. Like, and I feel pretty. <laughs> um, this one is very much about kind of going on uh, to making a choice and change, changing a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But then also, she becomes like villainous in a way that's very relatable because of this, like how she wants to present herself on social media. Or how she looks at other people who used to be the same size as her. Okay. And they kind of play those very genuinely, which I think is what makes the movie kind of work for me. As much as there were many more people on my screening who were laughing much more consistently. Um, so it could be a comedy hit. I, I don't I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Let's, we're I, just I couldn't tell that part. I couldn't at, tell that part. But it will play theaters. For yeah. Sure. At the very least, we are going to be, uh, you know, able to catch it on Amazon Prime if you if you pay for that. Among right. many other fine Amazon purchased movies. Um, right. Let's go back on over to Robert. I've got I've got a question about uh, a movie that you listed here. The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Um, it's definitely an evocative title. And this is a you know 2019 drama directed by Joe Talbot, um, stars Jimmy Falls, Jonathan Major, Danny Glover, uh, a lot, and Mike. This re- this really threw me off. Mike Epps, which honestly I'm a I, I'm down for Mike Epps. I'd like to watch. I like watching him in movies. And uh, Thora Birch, uh, also she might be recognized as the daughter from Patriot Games, and uh, she was in Ghost World. I want to say. Yeah, so um, Robert, tell us tell us a little bit about the last black man in San Francisco. Yeah, so um, the last black man in San Francisco definitely an evocative title for an evo- well provocative film actually. Um, so basically, the film follows Jimmy Fails, who um, once lived in San Francisco, but now if where I, I believe the the city that he lives in is undefined, but I guess we're supposed to interpret it as Oakland, mm-hmm. um, and his. The former home where his uh, that his grandfather built um, is now basically in a gentrified San Francisco uh, neighborhood, and the film basically follows him as he tries to you know gain control of this home that's um, now f- uh, basically foreclosed, um, and the film is is one of the movies at Sundance that was trying a whole lot, uh, succeeded in a lot of areas. And maybe needed a, a heavier editing hand, mm. Mm. Um, but I would. Um, Last back in San Francisco operates basically on two planes. The first one is the one about gentrification, where it really is showing how connected um, these black individuals are to their surroundings. Um, how much, how connected Jimmy Fails is to this home. Uh, even his physical appearance matches parts of the home. Um, and then it's also 
kind of examining, you know, a lost heritage of sorts, um, which for many who are victims of gentrification, there is a sense of lost heritage, a sense of lost lineage um, that comes when you move away from areas that your, you know, relatives and forefathers have built up. Um, the second kind of plane that it operates on, um, I was almost as a buddy film. Um, the character Jonathan Majors plays when Jonathan Majors gives a really fantastic performance. Um, is almost like this kind of meta storytelling of um, of the story that Jimmy wants to tell about his home but can't or is unwilling to face. Um, and later in the film, there's this big revelation that uh, Jimmy has to contend with. But it's the Jonathan Majors character that kind of, um, I guess, verbalizes uh, Jimmy's fears and um, basically the truth he doesn't want to confront. And then there's this the third portion of Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is an environmental portion, which I don't think worked as well. Um, and it's... I, I, I personally thought when I, when I was watching it, I immediately thought Flint, Michigan. And I thought that maybe the film was trying a little bit too hard to be... Um, um, I guess to be current with uh, certain events that's going on um, in terms of in terms of un, uh, underrepresented populations. But I think when the film is working within this buddy system, when it's examining gentrification, um, honestly, it's, it's probably one of the stronger films that was at Sundance, um, especially artistically. I mean, the beginning, first five minutes, which is just operatic with long tracking shots, um, is probably the best five minutes of any film at Sundance. I would wow. agree to that, Less best five minutes for sure. It really grabs you. It uh, really kind of just debut, like it really, you get a sense watching the first five minutes of this movie that this is like someone who truly cares about composition. And that's like an exhilarating feeling after seeing so many kind of movies start very quietly or like with forgettable opening shots, whereas this one doesn't for a reason. <laughs> mm. Well, that's, there, there's a lot to chew on. There's a lot to chew on there. So let's, let's start with the uh, gentrification part of it. So, I mean, that's going to be, that's that's been a hot button issue for more than just the last year. I think uh, we've we've been seeing a steady rise in people really talking about it and trying to tackle it. As um, you know, even here in the city of Chicago, we're dealing with a lot of issues of gentrification. Um, the neighborhood that I myself live in, Uptown, is seeing a lot of changes, a lot of more, a lot more condos, a lot more uh, people from outside the city moving in, a lot of especially young white couples uh moving in uh does this handle is is gentrification what this movie handles best i I want i'm very curious about that because that's what it seems like the title is implying is like hey we're gonna talk about gentrification that was the first thing i thought of never saw the movie uh that was like okay i feel like this is what we're gonna be talking about is that what it handles best yeah i would say so i mean i think it um it implicitly kind of grapples with, um, I mean, if, if you go into it with the background of knowing why gentrification is harmful to, you know, un, unrepresented groups, um, the fact that many of these groups, you know, back in the 50s and the 60s when they moved into these neighborhoods were moving into neighborhoods into these neighborhoods because they couldn't move into other neighborhoods because of redlining practices um, and the inability to get a loan in post-war America. 
Um, and the film leans very heavy, heavily on um, Jimmy's grandfather being a veteran, returning home from the war, not being able to get a loan and building this house with his own hands. Um, and then to see this house kind of taken away from the, the family heritage um, is kind of grapples with a pain that I think most underrepresented groups feel when gentrification occurs. So I, I think this film very, very much gets and understands and taps into that, that, that feeling of loss. Mm-hmm. Well, that, it does excite me because I've, I've, I haven't seen um, a lot of big movies really get into this. I think maybe not gentrification, but I'm watching uh, if Beale Street could talk. I feel like that that would be a primer for people who are just like I know nothing about ra- uh, structural race based violence in in America. Like what's going on? And then uh, this is like part you know the next step is that you watch if Beale Street could talk. Here's a little bit of the history, and here it is now, like continuing into 2019. Um, is there is there something to be said about the fact that Joe Talbot, the writer director, uh, is, is a white man as far as as far as I can tell? Um, is is there something to be said that he's writing about the black experience? Yeah, um, there has been a tiny bit of controversy with this, and I think some of it is stemming from uh, crediting. Um, I can't remember who I believe it was Marion Bell who wrote about this, um, but I believe that Jimmy Fails is also credited as a writer. So I believe it is co-written, uh, co-written by from a white and black perspective. So, I mean, there could be some controversy with that, but I don't think, I'm not of the belief that films that talk about black issues have to be, you know, up and down the line made up of African-Americans. I believe as long as there's a, you know, a synergy or as long as there's a reaching out, um, that happens to uh, the group that you're writing about, then that's fine. And I, I do think um, you can tell, for the most part, that there is a um, that there is an outside perspective on this and that uh, Joe Talbot really is listening to uh, the black voices around him. Well, that's that does uh, that does make me feel better. I mean, looking at the IMDb page, uh, you are correct that Joe Talbot and uh, Jimmy Fails share a story by credit. Um, it looks like the screenplay itself was written by Joe Talbot and a fellow by the name of Robert Reichert. Um, but yeah. I'm glad that that that's what you gathered. Like, hey, you know, it, while Joe is a white man directing and has a co-writing co- credit and co-story credit, uh, he's listening to the voices around him because, I mean, we just have to accept it that if we want to see um, an uptick in uh, movies dealing with oppressed groups and groups that are underrepresented, it's going to take, you know, a lot of listening and a lot of helping each other understand and helping um uh white filmmakers understand so that when they go to make these movies they might be very passionate about these issues that they can do it from a place of of understanding and um and a certain learnedness about the situation um matt let's jump on over to you i'm i'm curious about the nightingale tell me a little bit about the nightingale oh god this movie is brutal um (laughs) i no this was i um out of uh, i mean also full disclosure obviously i didn't see everything i saw like a quarter of the movies that were playing um but i was out of the movies i did see this is my favorite um and i wanted to die 
Um, <laughs> this is, um, I don't know if there's like a through line of that, of movies make me want to die. Well, They're my I, favorites. You, you came on once and talked a little bit about the house that Jack built. And I was and talking I was about like, the, scene, the haunting children scene. Yeah. And I was like, cinema, I wanted to die. Yeah. Um, the, uh, yeah, the Nightingale is the newest from Jennifer Kent, who five years ago gave us the Babadook and which also played at Sundance. And this is not anything supernatural and i guess you could call it a horror film but really it's a western steeped in old hollywood and it's takes place in 1825 tasmania um you have a young woman a young irish woman who's a convict and a group of colonialists led by sam claflin um repeatedly rape her and assault her family and attack her family and so instead of uh so she it's not necessarily that she runs away and it's not necessarily that she's going after them for revenge. It's mostly that she's going to, she wants to make sure that this doesn't happen again to anyone else. And so she teams up with an Aboriginal man and, um, they are going through this cat and mouse game through the woods of Tasmania. It is so heavy. It is. I mean, it's, it's about as heavy as you you would expect from that premise Mm -hmm. um but the the thing is that it's so consistent in its brutality and so unflinching unflinching um specifically the way that kent shoots all of her scenes there's such a closeness and specifically how how tightly she frames all the scenes especially the very disturbing imagery that happens in in the first half hour or so where i just started crying and i was like i don't know do I want to sit through this? I don't know. Um, and I, I mean, which is rare for me to question that. Yeah. Um, but there's, I, I mean, there's something to be said about a movie that has such a, it plays with its audience's perception of its characters and in turn makes the audience face what they didn't realize to be their own biases and how you have what is essentially a two hander, um with a one like one of the leads is a white woman and one of them is a man of color and you have them essentially fighting off this you know meeting at the middle of this sense of oppression and trauma that has binded them together and you have this sense of idea of every single scene there is one character who is traditionally thought of being as the most passive in a more like straight white you know eurocentric point of view that's what they would perceive that as as, and then it plays with those perceptions um a lot of times to really disconcerting or in some ways really satisfying and almost pleasing extents in the ways that it'll you know you know it'll sort of flip the subvert audience expectations especially the way that i think it, it helps a lot the way that jennifer kent deals with she has such a slowness that she treats the movie is about two hours and 20 minutes and um there are a lot of points where the movie will just sort of taper off into what feels like a dissociative state Mm -hmm. um that kind of echoes the sense of trauma that all the characters are going through um there are some moments of um comic relief that i don't think work they're they're not like offensive or anything they just just not in line with the tone tonally they don't work and i mean i those didn't work for me otherwise i was very much into it um and it's a very overall it's incredibly satisfying it's absolutely exhausting um 
but I really appreciate just how much literacy there is to this movie. I mean, it's because through and through it's a 1960s Western. Like there's the stoicism you'd see in like a Sergio Leone film. Mm -hmm. And there's one major beat that felt straight out of Paths of Glory, which I don't know if it was intentional, but even if it wasn't intentional, which I think it was, but it made me cry my eyes out because I'm like, it's so perfect. And um, there's... There's also a guy in my screening who fainted, so that's a thing. What? Um, I, okay, this is the thing. I don't know if this was the cause of it, because uh, halfway through, there was just a large thump noise, and then someone was like, please call 911, and they had to pause it, and then pull the lights up, and then apparently he had a seizure. I don't know if that's a yeah. was an anxiety induced seizure because those are possible. Um, but I, really I mean, hope not because that would be like, oh man, I don't know if I can. Yeah, I, can I mean, do this. Okay, because you know? apparently one of the screenings that there was, I think, um, I was reading a Dowd's dispatch, and when he was writing about this, when he went to one of the screenings, there was like a a, a person who came up and they're like, "Here you go. There's a fair warning. Like this is pretty brutal." Um, but they didn't give us that at the screening I went to. Um, <laughs> Well, but, it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, there were a lot of reports when Raw came out the uh, the horror. Yeah, film people want you know people were like throwing up and like couldn't get through it. So. Yeah, um, no, but the Nightingale is it's great. It's it's you have to be in a mood for it. Yeah, and, and I want to ask you about the brutalism um, because to handle that in a movie can it's the same thing with like we talked about with the human condition being a brutal film can either elevated to a certain level of commentary about violence and like you know giving you a sense of uh the realities of violence i would throw something like you were never really here into that category of you know lynn ramsey being like shooting violence in a different way to give you a different context of it but it's still an incredibly brutal film or it can fall into just kind of you know brutalism for brutalism's sake and this this avoids that based on what you've told me yeah because i mean because there's such a specifically the way it it's there's always such a disconnect in terms of how male filmmakers and female filmmakers shoot rape scenes or any scenes that are you know allegorically meant to imply rape uh-huh. um here there's it's not allegorical it's plain and it's it's absolutely traumatizing to watch um uh-huh. but the way she shoots it is a lot of tight shots on faces or um just a lot of shots of hands as they as they'll grab a body um and turn someone over um the way that she'll you know just sort of have a camera you know just set a camera down and you'll see something you'll see someone fall down or you'll see something um you know wither around in the wind Mm -hmm. or something like that um there's such a stillness to it um and when you place that against all the stuff that's going on screen it's it wears you down Mm mm-hmm do you know do you know if this one got picked up yeah ifc has it um they i believe they're i heard that they're gonna be trying to do something over the summer with it i don't know when it's gonna come out though i don't think they have an official release date that is exciting that is exciting because this sound this i mean reading your dispatch i was like okay this is uh something i'm genuinely excited for genuinely want to get um you know, into a theater and see. Hopefully, I'm guessing if uh, the music box will probably play. I would it at assume some point. the music box would get this. Yeah, and uh, what a better play! You know, not many better places <laughs> to see that movie than at the music box. Yeah, and it looks great too. It's shot in Academy um, aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. There's a, a fogginess and a sort of um, like a, a sort of lively desaturation that kind of hues through most of the the imagery. Yes. 
very excited. And now I really like the Babadook. That was really, um, I was like, oh, wow, this is way better than most horror I've ever seen. Yeah. This is like significantly better. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know what? Women, women in filmmaking show, again, showing their stuff. Um, not that they never had it. Uh, I, I think, uh, Kino Classics or something just released a huge box set of the first female filmmakers that dates back to like you know the early 20s and stuff like that so it's it's nice to be finally saying like saying that we're past the machismo filmmaker ideal of like the of the new hollywood your coppola's your scorsese's and that's not to say that i don't enjoy their films yeah but um let's get a fresh perspective uh, that is very much appreciated. And just side note, it reminds me one of one of the movies I really enjoyed from last year was Revenge. Yeah, another another uh, sort of. Although this doesn't sound like it comes off as a traditional rape revenge. No, genre it's film. it's not, and it's because it's not. I wouldn't say it's not like revenge is the total mo. Here, it's not the goal, but it's also. But also the thing about like comparing this to something like revenge, like revenge is gnarly and fun in a way yeah, it's, like revenge it's pulp. like the like the last half hour of revenge is gnarly as hell and it's yeah. super fun this movie is just like a pointed slog yeah yeah and that's it's meant to decimate you in a yeah way. exactly and i'm just like oh god okay yeah. what's next all right uh so we've got a little bit a little bit of time left here um unfortunately we won't be able to get to all these fantastic uh films that have been written about but of course you can catch all of the writing of these three great critics online. Uh, Nick Allen is over at rogerebert.com, Matt Zapola, Film Monthly, and also The Spool. And then Robert, our new friend, uh, at 812 Film Reviews. Uh, before we go, I want to put it out to you guys. I want to know what uh, one of or what was the worst movie that you saw at Sundance, something that you really were kind of like, I kind of didn't need to see this. Uh, I could have been out exploring Park City, Utah. Uh, Nick, <sighs> Nick, let's start with you. I, know, I hate to put oh, you on the spot, Jesus. but uh, what was something that you really didn't like? Uh, I'm trying to go through what I saw. Um, um, shit. Um, do, you want, do you want me to come back to you? Yeah, come on back to me. Sorry. All right. What about you, Robert? Do you have one at the ready that you were just like, ah, could, could have done without it? Um, oh, shoot. I'm <laughs> with Nick and <laughs> I mean, <laughs> You would think, like, the uh, yeah, after seeing, like, 45 films, one would stick out. You know, a bad one would stick out. But, I, I mean, I guess the two that I would say would be The Death of Dick Long and Velvet Buzzsaw. Uh, It'd be a tie between those two. Damn it. Did you say, what was the, what was the name of the first one? The death of Dick Long. Interesting. That's a uh, that's a that's a bold. T- it just it's, can you give me a brief synopsis? It's as sophomoric as it sounds. Um, <laughs> um, basically, it's um, about this wild, crazy, mysterious night that happens between three friends, and one friend is uh, mysteriously dies. Um, and the his two buddies are trying to cover it up so that way no one discovers their sexual mystery and uh, the sexual mystery is not what you think uh so there's a lot of um butt jokes a lot of fart jokes a lot of dick jokes and (laughs) (laughs) total total sundance fair really highbrow stuff (laughs) 
<laughs> really, really highbrow stuff. Um, Matt, do you have one that pops pops into your head? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Okay, I never got to talk to Nick about this movie, but my the biggest uh, shitbox for me, the, <laughs> the, the ass, the shit cherry on top of the ass Sunday was Uh-oh, a movie called was Mope. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hated this movie. I hated it. I've got, I've got some Mope promo condoms for you. I can give you one. Wait, you've oh, got to be Jesus. kidding me. They gave out they had promo, promo condoms, condoms in the bathroom at the premiere, and I was like, Jesus yeah, i got to grab one Christ. of these. So. You've, um, yeah, I hate this movie. Um, so... <laughs> I okay. So do you so it's like everyone obviously Boogie Nights is like the staple of like the of porn cinema yes. or cinema about porn. And then there's do you remember Bucky Larson Born to be a Star? Yeah. Oh my Bucky god. Larson. The <laughs> Nick Swordsman movie with um the Happy Madison movie with yeah. Nick Swordsman. Oh wow. where like that is a callback. Some, yeah, that is a callback. like somewhere between his insecurities and his daddy issues, he decides to be a porn <laughs> star. Um this is like that um with the tryhard raunch that you would see not in like an inspired tryhard raunch sort of shock value way but like american pie presents dot 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 oh yeah mope and <laughs> it's because it's well first of all the movie is based on a true story and they tell you up front um because that's really the only hook to this is there are these two guys who a couple years back decided to become porn stars and they found some sort of solace in their friendship and um as like but the main guy who we're focusing on he as we begin to find out the movie doesn't make it incredibly clear as to whether or not the movie is just incredibly stilted or this guy actually has something wrong with him and then the movie is like oh yeah no he actually has some sort of nondescript mental illness which is what they call it and then things go further south from there and it is this sort of you know it well first of all it's as ugly to sit through as it is to look at because the movie looks like shit it looks like someone got like a cheap lighting kit and an alexa and we're just they were just like fuck it let's pound this out in maybe a week and and we'll submit it to sunday and we'll see what happens jesus and it christ got in and it's <laughs> this it's such a the thing is the director has no concept of his tone because there's no he seems to be completely unaware of how sad and pathetic this entire story is until sure. it's way too late. And by the time it's way too late, it all of a sudden becomes sort of like this quasi thriller of sorts. And then the climax is entirely rushed. And before that, you just get a lot of like literal ball busting, <laughs> figurative ball busting, <laughs> a lot of really glib racism that doesn't have the social comment that the movie seems to think it does. Everybody, not, everybody's favorite type of yeah, racism is not, glib racism. Because it's not saying anything at all. It's not saying anything right. new. And there's just this, you know, banality to how poorly it does all of its shock value. And it's sad too because it's it's actually it's acted with a really good sense of energy it's just mm-hmm. such a waste of energy i mean brian husky plays this really shady porn director and i remember if you if brian husky i mean recently i remember like the most recent season of the x-files one of the um episodes where they decided to just go full-on comedy he played a conspiracy theorist and he was hilarious in that and you can tell he's trying here mm-hmm. and then also david arquette shows up as a quote-unquote fucking auteur and so i mean like out of the out of the like the i guess the mystique of being like what do you what oh my god 
I gotta say, that sounds like the greatest cameo of all time. I think I might watch it just because of that. I know, despite you, I guess um, sure. I'm I'm here for David Arquette. Uh, let's bring him back. So uh, your worst was Mope. I yeah. mean, it just sounds it sounds pathetic. Yeah. I mean, title but, included. The title is it's supposed to like a mope is a derogatory term for like a low rung porn star like huh. that just does like extras and like in the opening like they're all just prepping to do like a bukkake shoot <laughs> <laughs> and that's why they're called that and then it's just yeah i mean i because i was i was think it's I, I think it's fascinating so the thing about p and i screenings is that you always have people who are going to be you have volunteers who are like okay i have no stake in this and you have mm-hmm. you also have like industry people who are going to think okay i'm going to see as much as i can uh-huh. of this movie to decide whether or not I'm going to buy it. And once I know I'm not going to buy it, I'm going to walk out. But the thing is, the screening I went to, it was like a 130-seat auditorium. It was maybe like two-thirds full max. Uh-huh. And my greatest satisfaction just came from watching everyone walk out. Because it was just, just so like, pathetic. Yeah, I counted like 34 walkouts. Oh, what? Yeah. That's a, that's pretty impressive. That's yeah. pretty impressive. No, it's rough. Oh, man. All right, <sighs> Nick, uh, did you think mine. of something? Oh, all right, we got it. Hit Hit me. Uh, wait, were you asking me a question about Mope, or do you want to go into my, my well, worst? Let's go to let's go to your uh, your worst, the worst that you okay, saw. Okay, so uh, I was bummed about this, um, but it's coming out uh, next month uh, via A24 and DirecTV. It's The Hole in the Ground, which uh, is a horror movie. There is a hole in the ground, and it's an amazing hole, but it's not about the hole. So I was disappointed, and it didn't give me... So. Uh, what, yeah what is it about what is it about man it's okay so it's about <laughs> man <laughs> it's much more, <laughs> it's much more about basically this uh woman uh they're they're uh, scottish uh and her son mm-hmm. and they move away from a uh kind of disturbing uh past where she's uh, been abused and, and there's some kind of um partner or father figure who is uh evil and they've been running away from him so they go to this house on the countryside um and it's a creaky little house with uh you know only select lights in the hallways and everything so it's mm-hmm. a perfect place for some supernatural stuff to happen um and it does once these uh the mother and the son kind of discover this giant hole that's kind of like crater this sinkhole in the middle of this, this woods nearby their property and then the son starts acting strange and that's the that's the, that's the thing. That's pretty much it. Yeah, it's it's um it's it starts off certainly it's it's very score driven. So you get a sense, especially seeing in the theater, that like oh, it's just some really immersive, sinister shit. And then it kind of uh, goes in a different direction, as if it can't kind of marry the concept of a hole in the ground with its its bad seed omen, true intentions. <laughs> to speak. It. it- uh, Seeing the poster it reminds me yes. of um, they've got one. They've got this new one out coming. Up. It's called like the Prodigy the or something. Prodigy. It's like yep. what's wrong with tomorrow. Miles? Coming tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, thank you all so so much for uh, taking the time today. Give us a little update on uh, what you saw at Sundance. Um, you know, thank you. I know it can be a total slog to get out there, but I hope you all had a pretty decent time based on what you've told me. Uh, I'm glad that Matt Zipola is back to full health, um, <laughs> ready to do many more reviews. Um, and thank you so much to Robert for coming on for the first time. We uh, were really honored to have you. 
Thanks for having me. All right. So I'm going to just run down everybody. Uh, you can read Robert Daniels over at 812 uh, Film Reviews, Nick Allen over at RogerEber.com, and Matt Zapola at Film Monthly, and also uh, The Spool, which is the new, the, I guess, rebranding, rebranding of, of uh, Alcoholic Hollywood. And um, that is, oh my God, who? Clint Worthington, Clint who was Worthington, on here, yes, who was yes. on here when we talked about November movies. Yes. Uh, so Clint Worthington, hey, Clint, come on come back on let's talk about the spool uh again thanks so much you've been listening to noco cinema here uh on wgm plus we are your guide to cinema in the city of chicago i am tom hush and we'll talk to you all next time